Hey everyone, just a quick note before we start with the second season of Between Us. We're grateful to be partnering with the therapist who created the Medify app to help bring this podcast to the world. Medify, spelled M-E-T-A-F-I, is a self-awareness app designed to encourage a mindful approach to your mind, body, and emotions. Medify is a free download, so try it out on Android or iOS today and be your best self. Well, I don't, you know, I don't know the origins of the word wonk, but it means somebody who enjoys delving into this dirty business of government decisions. Policy has changed, Mr. Archibald. Changed what? Yeah, we've recently switched carriers from a PPO to an HMO. It's a less expensive policy, but unfortunately there, there are some restrictions. What kind of restrictions? Here's how it works. Non-management part-time employees, such as yourself, only qualify for second-tier catastrophic coverage. No, no, I'm, I'm not part-time. I'm full-time. It's just slow right now. Sure. But your coverage is based on hours worked. And like I said, you only qualify for second-tier. And that has a maximum payout limit of $20,000. What? I mean, been taking money out of my check every week. I've been paying into this policy for years. Right, and and that's why we're going to cover you for the full 20. <laughs> you kidding me, right? I mean, come on. All right, let me get this straight. You're telling me that you have dropped me from full-time to part-time. You switch carriers. Now you're telling me that I'm not fully covered, even though I got a policy that says I am? It doesn't seem right, does it? No, it doesn't seem right. I mean, my son is very sick. If I'm not covered, I got a serious problem. I understand that, Um, but there's nothing I can do. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, So I'm on the faculty at the University of Washington School Mm -hmm. of Public Health, and I've spent most of my career working on health policy in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nowadays, I also do a lot of health policy work globally. I teach health policy to graduate students. So what that means is mostly helping people who are going to go into the health sector understand how governments make decisions and therefore how they can be involved in those decisions Uh, as advocates or as staff people to politicians or as agency staff or whatever that is. My domestic Research has been historically about how healthcare markets change over time and how health policy influences those markets and how markets influence health policy. And I'm particularly interested in the role of, you know, key interest groups and stakeholders in the development of those public policies. The health sector is one of the biggest employment sectors in the country. And I'm guessing that most of those people, including myself, don't quite understand how it is that we're all getting paid. Most health providers got into their careers to help people, not to learn the tedious minutia of policy. And yet, psychotherapy, especially private practice, is a bizarre job in which authentic relationships are also transactional. 
the practitioner often must be the health provider, the business manager, the secretary, and the billing department all in one. Even in community mental health, clinicians have a great deal of responsibility to do much of their own billing. That's where I was working when the Affordable Care Act was implemented. What I noticed from that vantage point was far more coverage to the people with low income, and more patients meant hiring new clinicians. We didn't see a lot of downsides to the ACA from those trenches. But there were plenty of stories in the news of people all over the country who were dissatisfied. When I left community clinics to go full-time in private practice, I realized that I didn't know how healthcare really worked. I still don't, but my knowledge is better. One of the books that I bought when I decided it would be good for me to learn was Stephen Brill's book, America's Bitter Pill. In it, Brill writes a journalistic history of healthcare reform. One of the things that I took away from that book is how little the reform known as Obamacare actually has to do with Barack Obama. It has plenty to do with Hillary Clinton, Mitt Romney, Ted Kennedy, the Emanuel brothers, and plenty of other actors in the Obama administration. But as we faced down more sweeping changes, I thought that it would be important for us to look at what the legislation does and how mental health coverage is affected by the ACA. Aaron Katz is a professor of health policy at the University of Washington, and he was nice enough to sit down with me and discuss the ACA, how it works, and why some people like it and some people don't. So um, my background is in uh, my, my graduate uh, studies are in public health, mm-hmm. um, but it's more how I think of the world mm-hmm. uh, is why I'm in policy. Okay. And why health? Well, that's a good question. Why health? I mean, because I cut my teeth in the world during the 1960s. And I came from a fairly politically aware and active family. And being involved in that world um, was always sort of a part of the gestalt Mm -hmm. that I uh, grew up in. And so when I was looking at uh, sort of career paths and particularly graduate schools, I wanted to do work in an area that I thought mattered in people's lives. And so there were two areas that at that time, because of what was going at that time, that that intrigued me. And one was environmental policy and one was health. How government makes decisions on health, I'm guessing since that process started for you till now, is a, there's been some change. There's always changes. Um, health is a particularly interesting arena for public policy because it is a shared responsibility from uh, local to state to national governments. Mm -hmm. So it's not like national defense, which is largely the U.S. federal government. I mean, we have national guards and governors have responsibility for it. But largely, we talk about wars in Iraq. This is the federal government. The cities have relatively little to do with that. We can make a noise, as Seattle often does, but we don't have uh, responsibility. In health, it's quite different. So the federal government is very involved, um, you know, for example, Medicare. So here's a federal insurance program uh, for old, mostly older adults and people with certain disabilities, and it's basically run by the federal government. Whereas making sure that the food 
in the restaurants uh, is made in a hygienic way is responsibility of city or county governments. And then, of course, states are very involved in a whole range of things. Uh, they co-manage and co-run Medicaid, which is a state-federal partnership uh, insurance program, essentially, for lower-income people. Um, but also states regulate uh, hospitals, nursing homes. States are the ones who give practitioners licenses. So it's not the federal government who says you can practice as a clinician. Right. It's the state. So you see that the that it's a very complicated mm-hmm. uh, arena um, in, in terms of who has responsibility. And you see ebbs and flows of where the focus uh, is over time. Are the focuses partisan? Uh, well, partisan cer- certainly, but also and in, in related to partisan, it's also jurisdictional. So you think of from an advocacy point of view, if the federal government is not doing what you want to do on anything in particular, let's say mental health, uh, you might focus your your attention on the state if it seems to be more politically amenable to the kinds of changes that you want. And even the you know even the uh, local government some, can sometimes be a focus, but that's an ebb and flow depending on the politics and the particular way issues are framed and things like that. We keep having to change this part of the show because the news keeps developing and there is a slim chance that it will be up to date when we air. The recently proposed legislation, the American Health Care Act, that was pulled by Republicans for not having enough votes, seems to have been disliked by nearly everyone. One of the things that no one has disputed is that Republicans would like to undo the Medicaid expansion. But what does that mean? So the federal poverty level for a family of three is an income of $20,000 per year, which, if you think about it, is insane. The Medicaid expansion, which is part of how the ACA works, raises that eligibility to $28,000 per year. So the Republicans would like to lower it back to $20,000. Obamacare deems mental health as an essential service. There's 10 of them. They include things like emergency room and pregnancy care. A few weeks ago, as of this recording, when they removed the essential services from the AHCA, that's why you heard a lot of noise about it. Because people need those things. It's just that if they accomplish what they want to do by removing the Medicaid expansion, your family of three that makes in the mid-20,000s per year, you might not have insurance at all. And really, when you are a single mother of two children who can't afford health insurance, mental health is only one of many health concerns. I asked Aaron why it seems like the Republicans aren't worried about this failure of their bill. It seems a little too strange to see Paul Ryan come out and say Obamacare is the law of the land. And there's talk of them letting Obamacare explode. I asked him, what does that mean? He writes this, My guess is that the main explosion Trump talks about would be in the individual insurance market, the insurance exchanges. The risk pool has been slightly skewed toward older people, but as with any health insurance pool, needs a fair number of healthy or young enrollees. The individual mandate was one mechanism to get those healthy people to buy insurance. Also, aggressive outreach has been shown to help. Trump has already instructed his agencies not to enforce the ACA if they don't have to, and especially for the IRS not to enforce the penalties for the individual mandate. 
if health and human services also goes slack on outreach and enrollment, the insurance pools will likely get sicker. So premiums will rise, which will discourage the remaining healthiest people to leave, which will further increase premiums. That's the so-called death spiral, which would make these markets untenable for both individuals seeking insurance and insurers. So the bill might have failed, but the attack on affordable care is not over. Speaking of mental health, I I worked in community clinics when the mm. ACA was enacted or when yeah. it came to fruition. Mm-hmm. What I saw on the ground there was a massive influx of intakes. One of the things that we've had to reconcile over the last few months is that not everybody thinks that way. Not everybody sees what happened with the ACA as being this massive success in terms of expanding coverage. Where is the difference? Yeah. What is it that people perceive so differently? Yeah. I actually don't think that there's... This isn't about facts. Right. Okay. So you don't have opponents, the, the folks who are trying to to change or repeal the Affordable Care Act, directly arguing whether 20 million more Americans have insurance as a result of the law. And my opinion is that their objection to the law is that it's a big government program. It's not an objection about the effects of the law. To the extent that they use information about the effects, mm-hmm. you know, they will choose information that supports their larger case. And their larger case is that the Affordable Care Act is bad for America. It's not bad for America because people have got insurance. It's bad for America because it's a very large government program. That's my opinion about why the objection. You hear the rhetoric, you know, this has been a disaster and people's uh, premiums have, have skyrocketed and stuff like that. And, you know, like a lot of political arguments, there is a, an element of truth. So I think what you, th- you have to remember about the Affordable Care Act and what's being debated, what's being argued about, is a very, very small segment of the American population. And it's the segment of people who don't have insurance through their place of work, don't have Medicare for older people, aren't poor enough to have Medicaid, aren't in the military or uh, eligible for the VA. Mm -hmm. So it's actually less than 10% of people who have insurance have insurance in what's called the individual market. And before the the Affordable Care Act, the individual market was pretty much a free-for-all. That is, it was buyer beware about what the policies you were looking at contained. Um, They ranged all over the map. Some had quite adequate mental health benefits, for example, and some had none. Mm -hmm. Um, The way that premiums were set were determined essentially by the insurance company so they could set their own premiums. And it was pretty much a Wild West show. Very difficult for an individual to figure out what policy would be best because you're essentially 
comparing, well, you know, do I want my ears covered or my eyes? That was the kind of difficulty. There was no comparison between um, between benefit packages. Right. It's very hard to do that. So, um, and we saw uh, premiums in the individual market in many places around the country, including here, going up 25, 35, 45% a year. This is before the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act regulated in a much more proactive way and initiated by the federal government through, the, through that law, uh, more heavily regulated the individual market. It did that by making benefit uh, the the types of services that it, that a, that a health insurance policy offered more uniform. So there were ten essential services that had to be covered. They're very broad categories. It required uh, insurance companies to offer these benefit packages in only f- in four differently valued options. The value based on how much money the individual paid in premiums mm-hmm. versus how much money they paid in deductibles and coinsurance and copayments. So the the total value of an insurance product with with these 10 services is constant. That is the insurance company looks at these services, looks at its population, estimates how much those services are going to cost, divides by the number of people who are going to be covered, and that's the premium. Essentially, okay, but if instead, let's say a premium for that package is $500, okay, but let's say I, you know, I offer you that same package, but you pay the first $5,000, I'll lower the premium to $300, okay, it's like a piston. I mean, you increase the premium, you lower the the out-of-pocket cost-sharing, you increase the out-of-pocket cost-sharing, you lower the premium. And so the ACA regulates that all of that is balanced? It's basically a matter of when do you want to pay your money? Exactly. Monthly or when you get sick? Exactly. That's, that's correct. So it created these marketplaces like Amazon.com for insurance. Mm-hmm. The law envisioned that states would run these things. Many states refused to do that at the beginning until the federal government runs a, a marketplace in about 30-some states. And other states, like Washington State, said, no, we want to do it ourselves. We have a history of very strong consumer-oriented health insurance regulation here, so we wanted to do it ourselves. So we run our own uh, marketplace. But regardless, in every state, there's the plat- platinum plan, mm-hmm. in which you pay high premiums and relatively low out-of-pocket cost sharing, gold, silver, copper. And silver and copper are essentially, you may have heard this term, high-deductible health plans. So these are health plans with deductibles of three to $6,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So that means the individual is on the hook. Back to the, what the, the Affordable Care Act did, it just made it easier for people to compare because now I don't have to worry so much whether the, the, the plan covers my eyes or my ears. They cover generally everything that somebody would need. Now I'm, there's two things I'm looking at. One is, 
am I really, really healthy and I don't expect to use any medical care, mm-hmm. then I might bet on a high deductible health plan, the silver or bronze plan, because my monthly premium was very low and I'm just betting that I'm not going to get hit by a bus. And so at the end of the year, I will have saved money if I didn't use any medical care. So I'm betting on, on that. And then, of course, I'm also looking at what healthcare providers are in the network for each plan that's offered. Right. It just made it easier for people to shop. As a result, you think about competitive marketplaces. You have consumers who now, it's easier for them to make comparisons. There's fewer variables. The variables are more publicly knowable. Mm-hmm. Now you had much more direct competition among health plans for enrollment. Right. So the competitive marketplace for individual plans has changed. You know, roughly a third of the people who have insurance as a result of the Affordable Care Act have gotten them through these marketplaces. So I would say that's a net benefit because it's been easier. Uh, But that's easier for people to shop. But that's the focus of most of the complaints because, in fact, some people who had individual coverage before, Mm -hmm. and they may may have had a very low premium on a plan that covered very little, very few services, now all of a sudden they're required to buy a more comprehensive plan, and lo and behold, their premium is higher. In his book, America's Bitter Pill, Stephen Brill writes about the beginnings of the American healthcare system. It started in 1929, the year a group of Dallas, Texas school teachers signed up to buy health insurance from the local Baylor University Hospital. For $6 a month, they would get all of their care covered for up to 21 days in the hospital. The plan was called Blue Cross. At the time, healthcare costs were not much of a concern because there wasn't much healthcare. Hospitals were convalescent homes or places where people went to die, not the high-intensity, high-tech centers of complicated medical cures that they would become. For example, in the early 20th century, before the invention of penicillin, the forerunner to New York Presbyterian was a quaint building in Lower Manhattan with about 50 beds and services that featured bloodletting, some surgery, and lying-in facilities for the mentally disabled and for women who had given birth. When the Dallas teachers signed up for Blue Cross in 1929, Americans spent about 1% of the country's gross domestic product on anything related to health care. By 1966, it was 6%. And by the time Obama was running for office, it was 16%, heading towards 20%. A negligible cost in 1929 had become the country's and every family member's one financial burden. So that means that there's people who have, the, some of the people for example, who are complaining that their premiums have skyrocketed, can get eye surgery where they couldn't get eye surgery before. Correct. Right. And also, the vast majority, the other thing about these marketplaces and the Affordable Care Act is what it did is not just reform the marketplace for individual health insurance. It infused a lot of federal subsidies into that marketplace. So of the about 11 million people who have gotten uh, health insurance through these marketplaces, this individual insurance through these marketplaces across the country, about 80% or more of them, 9 9 million people, get subsidies for their premiums. 
And many of them also have subsidies for the cost sharing. So the effective price for them has been brought way down. Nonetheless, there are some people who probably their incomes are a little bit too high to get subsidies who used to have low premium skimpy benefits have been forced into higher premium, more comprehensive benefits. And what they saw was their premiums going up right. a lot. So there's a few people like that. I shouldn't say a few. There's, there's probably, there might be a, a million out of the nine million in that. I don't know. That's just a, sure. just a pulling a number off. But even you know, a million people is not an insignificant number, and those are real people. I was under the impression that the states that refused to take the federal subsidies for Medicaid expansion, that went on to affect premiums in those states. Those are separate. Those are separate issues. So, um, so what the law said was there's going to be an insurance exchange for individual insurance in every state. And as I said, the Congress intended that or expected that states would run these marketplaces. But I would say largely for for uh, political reasons, many states, many states run by uh, Republicans, they didn't want anything to do with it at the beginning. But the, the, the law didn't say, well, then there won't be any ins- individual insurance marketplace. It said the federal government will, will provide, will, will create the market, mm-hmm. the, the exchange. And that's what the federal government did. That's separate from the Medicaid expansion. Okay. So, there's a, so the, the rules around individual insurance and these marketplaces are essentially the same nationwide in every state. Mm-hmm. There's, there's some glitches rela- that is somewhat related to Medicaid expansion, but I'll, it's sort of a technical thing. Medicaid expansion is a different deal. Medis- Medicaid expansion, as a result of the Supreme Court decision in 2012, was optional for states. So, so it's an on-off switch. So about less than 20 states um, have decided to this point not to uh, expand Medicaid. And so their Medicaid programs are as they were essentially before the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. The other 30 some, 35, 33 states over time since uh, the act was put into effect have, have expanded Medicaid. And when they decided to expand Medicaid, they had to expand Medicaid in a certain way. I don't know where we go from here. It seems like a lot of people are going to lose their coverage if this administration has its way. I hear people on the left asking for single-payer coverage, and I don't have a lot of hope. It's clear in talking with Professor Katz that he is very matter-of-fact and neutral about these matters, but that his bias is for getting the best patient care to the most people which you would of course hope to be true about someone whose career is in public health. I told him that I had ambivalence about a Medicaid for all system in which the government provides services to all citizens. I'm skeptical that insurance industries would let it happen. I told him I didn't know how I would feel about being a government employee. And I asked him, wouldn't that mean that a whole lot of rich people in this country are suddenly knocked down a few tax brackets? 
He assured me that what people in the U.S. want is more like Canada's system, where practitioners rave about the administrative ease in which business is conducted. At the end of the day, no matter what kinds of anxieties practitioners may have, it is clear that our country needs to do better. Single-payer healthcare seems like an ethical no-brainer. This has been Between Us. Our thanks to our guest, Professor Aaron Katz from the University of Washington. We'd also like to thank our sponsors for Season 2, Medify. Medify is the self-awareness app designed to encourage a mindful approach to your mind, body, and emotions. It's a free download, so try it on Android or iOS today and be your best self. Between Us is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely. Mason also composed our music. Find us on your podcast apps and subscribe. Find us on social media and leave us your feedback. And until next time, take care.